When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, a culture critic for Slate. Joining me today are Troy Patterson, Slate's wonderful TV critic. Hello. Welcome. And Stephen Metcalf, a dilettante columnist and the ringleader of the wonderful Culture Gab Fest. Welcome, so, Steve. Troy's wonderful and the Culture Gab Fest is wonderful. And the but... wonderful Steve Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to screw that up. Here I've written, and the wonderful, but then I had to fill it in and I got But did confused. you underline it twice? Thank you, Megan. It is a pleasure to be here. We're, I'm really glad to have both of you here today to discuss uh, Don DeLillo's White Noise, which is both a loved and hated novel, one of the most loved and most hated novels of the past 25 years. We're actually discussing it because it was first published 25 years ago. And there's a new edition to honor the anniversary, published at the same time as his new novel, Point Omega, which has been um, much anticipated. And we may touch a little bit on Point Omega as well. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys in one sec, but I thought I would just do a quick refresher for our audience members, our listeners, who haven't read the novel in a long time. White Noise is um, the story of, it follows a year in the life of Jack Gladney, who is the professor of Hitler studies at a kind of bucolic college known as the College on the Hill. And Hitler studies is a field that he has invented. He's married currently to a woman named Babette, but he's had four previous marriages. And he and Babette live in a kind of home filled with many children, children of different parentage. And it's a kind of the the resolutely non-nuclear American family. And both Jack and Babette uh, suffer from a crippling fear of death, which becomes one of the great subjects of the novel. And the book is divided in three sections. The section I remembered most clearly from the first time I'd read it was the, the section about the airborne toxic event, and we'll get to that. But the third section is also about these pills called Dilar, which are psychopharmaceutical pills that rid you of a fear of death. And we will talk about all this and more. I would also say, Megan, that mm-hmm. from uh, beginning to end, the book is about consumerism. Absolutely. And about advertising and Absolutely. all its mysticism and horror Yes. Consumerism and media overload. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. To which end, I'd like to remind our listeners that uh, we here are sponsored by (laughs) Audible.com, which offers more than 60,000 downloadable audiobooks. Talk about media overload. Yes. No, that's underload. Underload. (laughs) If you sign up for a one book a month subscription to Audible through our URL, you'll get a credit good for one free book, yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. Moreover, your membership it includes uh, this is a new thing your membership includes a free subscription to either the new york times or the wall street journal's daily audio edition hey the address to go to for all that is www.audiblepodcast.com/slate and there you can read or listen to rather 
both Don DeGlo's new book, Point Omega, read by Campbell Scott. Or you could also listen to White Noise, though I do not recommend it. <laughs> well, on that note, Troy, rereading White Noise. <laughs> what uh, what did you make of it? What did you what do you most want to take talk about today? Rereading White Noise. You know, Megan, one of the reasons that I'm not interested in having a Kindle or reading books on an iPad is that it's not economically feasible to throw them across the room or slam them against <laughs> the desk when you get uh, frustrated or annoyed or irate with them. And that a was a regular practice in the Patterson household. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that this is a bad book, uh, flagrantly bad, but bad in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I suppose that um, my throwing it across the room especially had to do with the fact that when I first read this book when I was 19 or 20, it struck me as powerful and profound. And Are you sure not, you're not just filled with loathing at the naivete and callowness of your 20-year-old self? Well, there's always that, yeah. <laughs> but um, there's also a lot of callowness and glibness mm. to this mm -hmm. book. That said, Dante still has some skills that are worth talking about, and it's important, I think, to acknowledge his influence, even if he is in some ways a bad influence. And I don't know. In terms of the importance of this book, I would liken it to the movie uh, Easy Rider, which is not a particularly good movie, but I think captures something about the the spirit and the the rhythm of the baby boom generation in much the same way that uh, this is a canonical Generation X text. Interesting. A Gen Steve, X text. That's so funny. What do you think of White Noise? Um, the audio book club has put me in touch with the interesting life phenomenon, which is uh, which is the act of rereading and discovering yourself at different points in your own life by rereading books. And I'm always shocked to discover where books become like an accordion that's kind of falling on its, uh, you know, falling open on its sides or something. They become loose or prolix or boring, long-winded, where I thought they were terse, witty, right. uh, uh, brilliant. White Noise is the very first book that I've reread, which I had almost precisely the same experience of the second time around that I had the first time. Like many people, I read it in the 1980s. Like many people, I thought it was uh, brilliant and funny. And um, I suspected I would go back and have some of the same response that, that Troy did, that I would find it somewhat jejune, that its postmodernity would have aged quite poorly, the satire maybe somewhat overplayed or unfunny. And at the end of the day, an empty, occasionally brilliant, but mostly empty exercise. That's not the response I had to the book at all. I recently learned as a new wine aficionado something that I at first thought had to be fraudulent, but turns out to be true, which is that some wines are brilliant for about the first three years after their vintage, and then they go dead. And they go dead for periods of up to 10 years, and then suddenly they bloom and they're brilliant again. It seems to me this is exactly the way classic works of literature uh, operate, that they, they appear first to comprehend their time perfectly, and then in a subsequent decade they go mute, and people can't perceive them anymore as fresh because they're seeing them from the decades that come immediately after their inception or creation, and they seem dated, they seem artificial, and, and they go dead for that whatever period it is. And then slowly readers lose their connection to the time in which the book was written 
and some deeper, truer quality of it rises to the surface. I don't find this book glib at all. And and let me amend my first statement. I found it every bit as funny as I, I originally found it, which shocked me. I laughed out loud constantly to the uh, constant annoyance of my wife. But <laughs> but there was a deepening of my original appreciation because it's not a Gen X book. In fact, it's about a middle-aged man written by a middle-aged man. And um, now I am a middle-aged man of roughly the same age of, uh, as both the writer at the time he wrote it and the, and the narrator. And I, I see in it the pathos of middle age. I see how at the heart of this book is a man's long Longing for some sense of um, uh, community and meaning, to use completely uh, clunky and, and cliched terms, but to, to, to be somewhat less clunky and cliche, at the center of it is a man who's trying to communicate with his wife and trying to experience a kind of love and community of two with his wife. And uh, a lot of the book uh, has a genuine pathos uh, about how that communication ultimately breaks down in a, in a massive way towards yeah. the end of the book. So for me, this book is not only entirely a success. I think it's uh, it's DeLillo's best book, and I think it's a book that uh, in uh, 50 years and 100 years, 200 years, people will look back on. I, I see the source of Troy's quibble, and I, I intend to uh, uh, destroy it rhetorically. <laughs> um, but um, for now, let me just say I was I was I was blown away. Now, there, you know, it, now which is not to say that it's not an annoying book. It's not a sure, somewhat sure, overplayed sure. book, and it's not to say it's like, right. flawless. But I mean, having recently read reread The Great Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye and right. and Anna Karenina, these aren't flawless books either, yeah. and yeah. and yet they persist. It's interesting. I had a reaction that was kind of uh, half halfway between the two of you. Well, not even halfway. It actually contained equal parts intensity of both. There were moments when I absolutely wanted to throw this book across the room, and I actually felt that the consumerist critique was the weakest part of the book. That's the part that, that I think sometimes uh, reads as glib or oversimplified. But to me, the big surprise of rereading White Noise was that it was really a book about marriage as well as these other things, like you say, Steve, and that the marriage part of it and the search for kind of communication in this very domestic world and a communication that would raise domesticity to the level of a kind of spiritual quietude or spiritual center was much more a thread in this than my 20-year-old self reading the book could understand at all. And that, that that interested me. The book is actually, and obviously this is on my mind, I was on the Culture Gab Fest discussing t- death and dying with both of you. But rereading this book, I think it is one of the great formulations of the culture's fear and avoidance of death um, and a fear and avoidance of death that has really taken over American culture in very specific ways connected to consumerism in the past 40 years. So that I thought was really extraordinary about it. But there are whole sections of this book that you think, oh, they're just so overwritten. They're just so the, – some of the supermarket stuff is extremely irritating. And we can look more specifically at that. But, yeah, let's dig into the book. Uh, what – Troy, when you said there were things that DeLillo did well and things that didn't, what – he didn't do well. What, what did you mean? Uh, I would begin by saying that what, what inhibits this book as – a story about communication in a marriage is that these people do not communicate yes. in uh, an interesting, <laughs> uh, I want to say a legitimate way. All yeah. of the characters in the book talk this, well, no, all, let me not engage in uh, the sort of generality that is damaging to this text. Very many of the characters in this book speak exactly in the same way, which is all sort of robotic. Yeah. And I don't think that this is effective in a way in uh, sort of in a, a way that might work for an absurdist or maybe it would work in Beckett say it just seems dead and 
I'm willing to give him credit for not exactly being tone deaf. Mm. Um, but let's say it's um, a, a deeply unsuccessful attempt to capture um, the alienation of postmodern life. It's interesting. I was trying to really think about what is that dialogue because I know exactly, you know, I think it's, we all know exactly what Troy is talking about. There's this kind of, everyone in the book is talking past each other, which at moments, uh, not always, but but there's a kind of riffing there. They speak in a very stylized way, and I was trying to identify exactly what that was, and it was very hard for me to do so, except yeah. to say that it's almost the dialogue of distraction, of deep distraction that's being met by an intent, to, a desire to kind of accumulate language or accumulate um, pieces of information. Steve, mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, about I think this information dialogue? is the key word. The, the people are talking in ways that don't connect in any noticeably organic way to the human core, which is the narrator's voice, right? It's the it's the tone that dominates the book through we should say it's narrated in the first person. And Bad and, and right. And that 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 tone like that aggressive tonelessness that infects everything in the book is a problem. It is true too many people speak in exactly the same way. And furthermore, they're preoccupied with the pathologies of consumerism in ways that sound inordinately like the central sensibility of the book, the narrators. And that's that's a problem. I will say that there are moments when he manipulates that with dexterity so that it's quite funny. So Murray is a colleague of... Uh, I, Troy, did you find none of the book funny? I was, um, I, I was your just, wife has important hair. That's a pretty funny. Line. <laughs> Murray is the funniest. Part. I mean, Murray's hilarious. So, so I mean, I thought the academic satire yeah, was just Troy, dead. What did you was think? Just, I'm sorry, I jumped right in over. Well, I'll just finish the thought quickly. I mean, I, I thought one of the ways in which the uniformity of tone was used to its advantage was uh, so Jack has pioneered this academic discipline called Hitler studies, which were meant to find. On the one hand, we're meant to find it preposterous. On the other hand, he is teaching something of something like substance to these kids. But he's very conscious of how this is a it's a it's a careerist, a shrewd careerist coup to have come up with some new field of academic study. It gives him this. I mean, there's this talk of, uh, he also of sort wears of a robe everywhere. He wears a t- academic tunic everywhere and sunglasses whenever he's on campus. Right. He takes the sunglasses off when he's not on campus. But um, the force of the academic satire is so interesting, I think, because even though it's supposed to give him weight and substance as this careerist, nothing conveys actual weight, substance, or authority in the book. So there's this very removed, calculated appreciation for how he's gotten ahead in a careerist way. And furthermore, you see him using charismatic authority as a professor, even as he's teaching about the horrible uh, mass murder dangers of charismatic authority. I think all of that's done uh, deftly in one very funny <laughs> aspect of it is he has a, a friend who's an ex-New York sports writer, one of what he calls the New York emigres, these very tough sensibility kind of culture studies types who end up in this campus. And I don't think we know where. We, all we know is it's not in California because they talk about California as a distant place, right? But we're assuming... It's in the middle Midwest. of the country. Yeah, Midwest. It's Midwest. So it's like a gr- it's like Grinnell or Simpson Springfield. Yeah, say. it's yeah. it's very much Simpson Springfield. But but also there's a sense it's in like the Rust Belt because we're in a suburb yes. of hulking Iron, Iron City. City, Iron City, yeah. and they're hulking abandoned yeah. um, structures. Anyway, so he has a colleague who's desperately who's seen his success with Hitler studies. He's one of the New York emigres. His name is Murray. He's an ex sports writer, and uh, Murray. In, in hoping to imitate the success of Jack, wants to create something called Elvis Studies, which is another book, that, a joke that runs throughout the book. And and, and Murray, Murray's hilarious, I think, because DeLillo is signaling to you how he's one inch from preposterousness by giving you Murray. Murray is the voice of this 
you know, Murray constantly is incanting in the presence of consumer goods and t- talking about how they they're, they're you know. Uh, occult communiques from the dead, practically, and 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 searching for patterns and and hyper counterintuitive insights into American co- consumer culture, and he clearly is a parody, right? You're meant to find him preposterous in this sort of charming way, and and Delillo is saying, I know I'm an inch away from this, but aren't I also Murray. from being Murray, right. right? And aren't I also in, in, an inch away from something else, which is isn't, isn't Murray himself very close to saying something? Write about this um, conjuries of of symbols and um, uh, and portents. Right. Well, I would say that that's it's a joke. It's a decent joke, but it's sort of one joke that um, gets stretched pretty thin. And I would say, for instance, that for all of the books talk about um, sort of the codes that speak to us on supermarket shelves, it just the book sort of takes that as a given. Which is not a remark- – first of all, it's not a remarkable point to be making in 1984. For another, if you want to talk about the codes and the meanings of what's happening in the supermarket, then talk about it. Because I think actually there there is something to be said for – you know, about Tony the Tiger on a box of Frosted Flakes. But um, this book is so vague and hazy in its generalities that it sort of refuses either to – engage with what it's pretending to critique or to just kind of um, flatter the reader's smugness about sort of his superiority to the droids in suburban wastelands. I don't pick, that's a note I don't pick up on at <laughs> the all. Megan, yeah. Megan, do you think that this is a book which delivers to the reader a smug sense of superiority mm. over the suburban that, you know, droid? That I don't, but you know, I'm really interested in what Troy just said because it's true. For me, the consumerist part was the part where I kept getting irritated, like the moments in the supermarket where there would be a reference to the code. On the other hand, it felt really integral to the book. I did not get smug superiority, but I think the the question I come away with is like how do you critique consumerism in a way that's that's interesting right I mean the scenes that come to mind are scenes of kind of style but not substance like I think of the Brett Easton Ellis scene of all of the um, from American Psycho where everyone's pulling out their business card. Mm-hmm. Right. right. That's for me, I, I, that's just, it's not saying anything really different from what DeLillo is saying here, mm-hmm. but it's just got more style somehow than some of the moments here. But the thing I'll say, I want to read one of the refrains, one of the, the kind of tactics or strategies that DeLillo uses in the book is he'll go into these moments of kind of lyric meditation or meditation on existence and death and then it will be followed by a complete non sequitur. Often the form that non sequitur takes is a refrain, and the refrain is the refrain of product names or, you know... It's and so three. Three, and it's always yeah. three. So I'm just going to read a passage that's indicative of this, and then I was thinking maybe we could talk about this and whether it's an effective strategy. So What page are you on? I'm on page 99, and he's talking about Jack is... And Babette have been just talking about the fact that their life is good and it needs to be said. But then she murmurs that she has terrible dreams. And he goes into this meditation. Who will die first? She says she wants to die first because she would feel unbearably lonely and sad without me, especially if the children were grown and living elsewhere. She is adamant about this. She sincerely wants to precede me. She discusses the subject with such argumentative force that it's obvious she thinks we have a choice in the matter. She also thinks nothing can happen to us as long as there are dependent children in the house. The kids are a guarantee of our relative longevity. We're safe as long as they're around. 
but once they get big and scatter, she wants to be the first to go. She sounds almost eager. She is afraid I will die unexpectedly, sneakily, slipping away in the night. It isn't that she doesn't cherish life. It's being left alone that frightens her. The emptiness, the sense of cosmic darkness. MasterCard, Visa, American Express. I tell her I want to die first. So that's one of the strategies in the book. I, right? think, I think confronted with Troy's skepticism, I, or I should say I, I would never counter Troy's skepticism with those little trinities. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that, that if, if you had to lose one thing, but we should say they happen once every 40 pages in the book. Sure. Well, there's those, but and then the also there's this, this large, constant uh, yeah. kind of media chatter from televisions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. radios that mm-hmm. is sort of, it's meant to be ominous, and I find it... Um, I don't think it's meant to be ominous, though. I'm sorry. don't mean to interrupt. But... I find it... Phony. You find it phony. But, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking a lot about when, since we're talking about this book on the occasion of an anniversary, when this book was written. You know, so much has followed that's been like this book. One thing I did feel about the book, and I agree, Steve, those trinities, although I did use them to, to kind of in response to, to Troy's point to show what's weak with the book, they're not, they're not representative of the strengths of the book. And the strengths of the book to me were that there were moments, and they didn't have to do with these little you know, trinities or of, of kind of consumer name brands being, you know, kind of blared repeatedly through the book, like a kind of attention Kmart shoppers refrain. They had to do with the moments where he, he did project for, I mean, his interest in fascism and the power of authority is really interesting. And there were these moments, I kept writing 9-11. Mm-hmm. I thought this was actually his great 9-11 novel mm-hmm. in some way, much better than Falling Man. And that in a certain way, this is almost one thing that people always say about DeLillo is that he He's got this kind of eerie prescience. Um, there's something prescient about his writing. In fact, the Times Book Review called him weirdly prophetic about 21st century America. Now, the flip side of that is what you're saying, Troy, which is that how hard is it to be prophetic about this thing that's all around you? And, um, you know, consumer, is it that interesting to say in 1984 that consumerism is running rampant? On the other hand, there were these moments where DeLillo kind of, I thought, and I wonder if you agree, Steve, pushed forward into what the natural extension of that the condition people found themselves in might be and imagined it. And those moments have come true in some cases. Yeah. And also, I, they're, they're, if someone hadn't read the book and listened to your description, Troy, I think they would be imagining a satire on consumerism that was constantly showing us how evacuated of meaning and, and purpose and organic substance is the envelope that we all live in, the media sphere and the supermarket, right? The television and the supermarket, right, are these two dominant communities in the, in the American imagination or American life. And that's not, the, like, that's not the experience I had of this book at all. One of the reasons why he doesn't drill down and talk about very many specifics in the world of this consumer bubble is that he is trying to make, he's trying to convey it as a white noise he's trying to convey it as this enveloping uh, omnipresence and and it's about this one man's attempt to break out of the uh, out of the the t- tonelessness of affect that it leads to and then the other thing i would say is that libra is the great novel of paranoia right in which the terror is that, in fact, there is no conspiracy, right? The terror at the heart of that book is that Oswald uh, did, in fact, act alone, right? And that what you want 
as a man, like Delilah's famous phrase is men alone in rooms. And, and there are sort of two things that men alone in rooms do, right? The first thing they do is they imagine what other men in other rooms are doing in a conspiratorial way. And therefore they begin to conspire preemptively. And therefore you have these ratcheting attempts to master modern information and life via conspiracy. The, the, um, the second thing they do is they begin to look for and find patterns in the information that's coming to them into this sort of isolated place because they're terrified of the possibility that, on, that there's only this honeycomb, right, that the people are only isolated, they're only atomic, and they've been abandoned in some sense. And that thought is so painful that you begin to search for, desperately search for, patterns of, of agency, right, in what otherwise would be random signals. And I thought this was an interesting book because it, it took that one step further. It moved, it moved away from the kind of Thomas Pynchon preoccupation of the 70s, right, uh, about paranoia and anime or whatever. And it moved it into a domestic drama in a completely realistic way, which was, well, we're bombarded by these stimuli. Like, we can't deny the reality which the book is meant to comprehend, right? I mean, we are bombarded by constant stimuli. And the question is whether, taken collectively, they all cancel each other out to the degree that they really do form just one a semantic whole, or, right? Or, or nebulous mass, which is or, or, which is the thing that he suffer thinks he's suffering from. Or the, nebulous uh, mass, or whether taken together, they actually they actually these waves and radiation actually are uh, uh, a deeper kind of uh, a deeper expression about uh, death, the fear of death, you know, and the barrier between us and, and and the dead. And I don't think the book answers that question, which I think is why it's it's interesting. I mean, if it asserted confidently that this was somehow uh, the chanting of the dead. The supermarket barcodes were, were, were you know, si- signs of life after death. It would be preposterous. But um, well, I, I would say that that the book does not answer that question is one indication of its failure. And in the matter of nebulous masses, I mean, my feeling is that in the matter of the postmodern condition, this book, which sort of pretends to be a diagnosis is in fact a symptom a itself, symptom itself yeah. uh, and that and that Delil has taken on the look of a prophet because of the uh, the sort of nebulosity of his of that which he, he is predicting um, it's a bit like reading the horoscopes maybe I think I'm stealing somebody else's idea when I say that moreover I would observe that I do think that Libra uh, which is uh, Delilah's book about um, the Kennedy assassination about Lee Harvey Oswald is in my memory it is the best thing he's written although having had this very bad experience with white noise I'm kind of scared to go back and check I think that Libra's great as is the uh, the very first section of underworld about um, the shot heard around the world. That's astonishing. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. there's something he's a writer of some real gifts and I think that I just I, I point to those two examples of him writing very well. I think that being grounded in factuality and in the real is a great asset to him. Uh, and that when he's kind of wading out into this murky territory that it can lead to these characters that feel bogus and these kind of riffs on the human condition, the postmodern condition, conditional conditions, what have you, mm-hmm. that, are, that are not substantive. And that there's a way in which part of my anger about this book has to do with the fact that it, um, 
kind of reminds me of my own worst habits as a writer. Mm-hmm. Sort of you, you sort of notice something, you have an impression, and you feel that you're sensitive to something. You haven't fleshed the idea out, and you try to just write your way out of it by being uh, stylish, mm-hmm. and the, uh, you feel that the the stylishness uh, somehow excuses or maybe disguises the uh, fake gnomic quality. Mm. To your list, I would add the first half of Americana, which I really love. And one of the things I love about it is it's a quite astute um, observation of kind of life in New York in a certain milieu in the 1970s. And what you're saying, Troy, reminds me of um, a point Judith Shulovitz makes in her review of Point Omega in Slate right now. And I'll just sort of summarize a line and I think it's relevant, which is she says that his characters have grown slightly more generic with every novel and that this is held against them, um, that they have a kind of irresistible urge to subsume what little distinct identity they have into something purer and less subjective, you know, data streams and uh, data streams, which we see here, or consumerism, um, financial data streams in Cosmopolis. And I'm was reading a little bit of Point Omega, and one thing I noticed is that that certainly this book is far more grounded than Point Omega is. We we actually get characters referred to by their names in this book, whereas in Point Omega it's often he. He did this, he did that, and it becomes more and more, um, we become more and more separated from the particularity of characters. But this is, after all, one of DeLillo's great fascinations, right, is the desire to subsume identity into something larger, the question of whether this is possible in an age outside of belief. And Steve, I'm wondering, what would you say in response to what Troy just said? And in context of this idea of being, do you find that kind of vague? Do you find that this book is vague? Uh, no, I, I thought that it's, it's the great literary skill that's being brought to bear on the subject matter isn't the tonelessness, isn't the vagueness, isn't the incantations of consumer life. I thought it was just the incredible sense of humor it has about this landscape and how it uses a a tonelessness and a juxtaposition to tell terrific, terrific jokes that work completely for me. I mean, hilarity. And uh, there's a wonderful moment in the book where, I mean, uh, first of all, I should say... Do you want to read a passage? uh, Yeah, Yeah. in one sec. But very quickly, I mean, it seems to me that American classics always literary classics always overplay or underplay right so you have the tradition of great gatsby catcher in the rye huck finn books that are have a modesty a brevity that makes them hard to recognize as classics at the time and then over time people recognize them as perfect or potentially perfect books and then they, they, there's the tendency to overplay right there's the pseudo epic the comprehending this giant continental crazy continental economy so you have moby dick uh, gravity's rainbow and delillo's own underworld which he wrote you know, subsequent to white noise. One of the things this book suffers from is it's right in between those two, right? It's certainly when you put it next to Underworld, it's an it's a smaller book. It's painted on a on a, a littler canvas. Uh, the dom- domesticity of it is at the heart of it, as opposed to the. I mean, the whole cult, the whole culture arrives at this domestic unit eventually via the supermarket and the television. But it's basically about a small small canvas. But I agree, you could it, you want it. I didn't want to throw the book across the room, Troy. I wanted to pick it up, put it in my hands like a wet. Wash a uh, dish rag and squeeze it, and mm-hmm. get some of the some of the content out of it, and yeah, leave behind totally. leave behind seventy per- percent of it. It's weirdly overplayed and underplayed. There is a passage I'd love to read, if that's right. It's on page twenty five. 
Every semester, I arranged for a screening of background footage. This consisted of propaganda films, scenes shot at party congresses, outtakes from mystical epics featuring parades of gymnasts and mountaineers, a collection I'd edited into an impressionistic 80-minute documentary. Crowd scenes predominated, close-up jostled shots of thousands of people outside a stadium after Goebbels' speech, people surging, massing, bursting through the traffic. Halls hung with swastika banners, with mortuary wreaths and death's head insignia. Another thing that struck me about this book, by the way, is it precedes the internet. Wait, is this supposed to be the funny part? Or- <laughs> <laughs> supposed to be laughing inside. Um, it precedes the internet. It, the book precedes the internet, and that some of it's... It's very I, weird. That, yeah. that someone, it's funny to think of someone writing a book this proliferating of... of you know what I'm saying? It's like Wikipedia could give you a lot of this stuff at the snap of a finger, but he's writing it either in a library off of his top. I mean, it's just sort of a banal observation. But I mean, you what, know. But what do you mean? Like what? I don't. I mean, I, I, this isn't the best example of it, but there are parts of the book where where there's a, a proliferation of detail. Of information. Uh, and of inf- exactly, mm-hmm. of information. And it's, it's, funny that, it's funny to think of how someone prior to the Internet well, Either had that at his command or found a way to find well, it. But. And also that that is one of the anxieties of the book, that, that there's too much information and there's no center, which was, of course, only to become that profounder anxiety in the culture right. after this book. Sorry, but you were going to finish reading the passage. Sure. Um, Ranks of thousands of flag bearers arrayed before columns of frozen light. 130 anti-aircraft searchlights aimed straight up. A scene that resembled a geometric longing, the formal notation of some powerful mass desire. There was no narrative voice, only chants, songs, arias, speeches, cries, cheers, accusations, shrieks. I got to my feet and took up a position at the front of the theater, middle aisle, facing the entranceway. They came in out of the sun in their poplin walk shorts and limited edition t-shirts and their easy care knits, their polo styling and rugby stripes. I watched them take their seats, noting the subdued and reverent air, the uncertain anticipation. He goes on. And then soon there was a hush. It was time for me to deliver the introductory remarks. Uh, The documentary comes to an end and he says, I found myself, interesting, I found myself saying to the assembled heads, all plots tend to move deathward. This is the nature of plots, political plots, terrorist plots, lovers' plots, narrative plots, plots that are part of children's games. We edge nearer death every time we plot. It is like a contract we all must sign. The plotters as well as those who are targets of the plot close quote and then he says uh, to us is this true why did i say it what does it mean it means he's bullshitting (laughs) yeah but he's saying he's bullshitting but but it's not engaging some reality which is i mean people did surge to nazi rallies as recently as you know when this book was written 40 years previously looking for something and they thought they found it there right and in america we that longing assuming it's a human longing is universal we have it we live in a modern society and we've learned to live with it in other ways that don't produce organized violence and but but boring. but we but there's a there's a price there's a p- price for the for the forms of, that charisma takes in American culture there there's a price for convenience as an ultimate human end and one price is the tone of the book I mean I think that's where hmm. the satire is being missed here it's his inability to connect up to what he is trying to communicate to these kids in a way that he's confident it's not horseshit, right? I, I mean, I actually think it's quite yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But also, but what is he talking about? All plots move toward death. In a, in a, in a classic comedy, the plot moves towards a wedding. He doesn't... That that part of it, he... like First of all, let's distinguish between DeLillo and, and Gladney, right? Gladney... Gladney places almost no faith in what he's telling those kids in that moment. He's just a classic horseshitter, and he knows he's getting by on charisma. And the point DeLillo is making is 
we're still looking for these tiny little dribble drabbles of, of charisma in modern life, one of which is the college professor at the lectern, right? But but the best he can do in order to keep it from tapping into whatever frenzy of like meaning and purpose the Nazis had was to bullshit, right? I mean, I, you know, DeLillo is doing something pretty deft there. I mean, he's certainly aware of what he's doing, right? Well, what I would say, too, is the plot theme haunts the book. It is de- it is developed as a leitmotif. It is a subplot itself, right? And the thing that made me interested in this book, rereading it, is that you can't actually isolate any part of it. You can't say this is a book about consumerism. It is, to me, a book about death. And the, but 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 you can't even just say that. It's about how we have subsumed, um, how, how we're repressing, this is one of the themes of the book too, our fear of death in consumerism rather than in fascist charisma. And that's mm-hmm. pretty explicitly what the subject of this book is. And that's what is, to me, its redeeming quality yeah, as, I, as I reread it. What's was the that, cumulative cost of these avoidance right. strategies? And, interestingly, and I think it's interesting that it gets read as a book mainly about consumerism because actually it really is mainly a book about how this other huge human thing, the absolute terror at the face of the idea of oblivion or extinction gets just gets like the cloud like the airborne toxic event it gets kind of eaten up from within by these microorganisms which are amex mastercard visa to me that's what i I think that's the book really is and and that's i think makes it redeemable the other the moments of annoyance and i I think the other point that is being made in the book which makes it acute is well, first of all, well, a couple things. The first thing is the very consumerism, which is the avoidance strategy that DeLillo is isolating, in fact, thrusts us back upon this fear endlessly because right. it appeals to us as a self, as an isolated self choosing among, amongst consumer goods, completely deprived of the human community within which everyone who is human who preceded us entered into in order to find meaning about the arc of life trending towards death, right? And so the irony is it, you, you're, you're playing this game of push-me-pull-you constantly with the consumer culture, which is it, it throws novelties in your face as a way of avoiding your existential situatedness, right? And, and the, all they do is further isolate you from other people and further isolate you from the sources of genuine comfort that allow you to live with this fact. And that's the terror that the book is tapping into. Uh, that's that's my that, defense of it. But do you think that Dolo thinks there is a genuine comfort? I'm not sure that that's where I find it nebulous. Like, I don't know, ultimately, would Jack Gladney be genuinely comforted by the kind of community that we've lost? I, I don't know. I think, you know, I think he's a person so beyond right. the possibility right. of it that he's not he's not contemplating. Right. I mean, this is also what fascists do, right? They say that there's a more organ. This is Paul Pot. This is, you know, many of them. There's an organic way of living, communitarian way of living that modernity has extinguished has and therefore en masse and regardless of the cost and violence, we're going to find our way back to it. And, right. you know. Right. Right. Um, I will say that even... For the sake of argument, I will accept all the points that um, <laughs> Stephen just made. Still, I don't think that um, – does it take a 310-page book with undifferentiated characters about whom it is impossible to um, have any human feelings? Does it take 310 pages of that to tell that story when it's a story that had already been told 25 years earlier by – 
Andy Warhol and James Rosenquist and Marshall McLuhan and Thomas Pynchon uh, and was, you know, getting told at the time and still getting told to this day, uh, you, you know, the same idea gets across in in singles by Talking Heads and Lady Gaga. And at least you can dance to those. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I take issue with 25 years before, which would put it at 1959, right? Yeah. I mean... I am able to diagnose your inability to appreciate this masterpiece. Um, I'm able to do it with the same precision with which they determine that there's nylatrine D or something in the blood of Jack Gladney. The problem is, Troy, you are a child of the 1990s. And the 1990s was the decade in American life when we re-urbanized, when we became urbane again. And this is the very last classic in a line of classics exposing the emptiness of suburban existence. And and I, I have to remind you that there was a time, Troy, I know this is hard to believe, there was a time where people got on trains or in cars and they drove sometimes vast distances to their workplace from these things called bedroom communities that were beset by commercial strips and no downtowns. And I know you've lived your life in a Jane Jacobs paradise. And I say this in all sincerity, you you are my vision of urbanity. When I close my eyes and I think of 90s urbanity, I do see Troy Patterson. And so, of course, this book is inscrutable to you. See, but I would say on the contrary, <laughs> that the two of you grew up in New York City, whereas sure. I grew up in like a Taco Bell parking lot in, in <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. And then I went away to college and like I discovered this book just at the moment where like somebody had told me what a simulacrum was mm. and you know, read a little bit of whatever, Roland Barthes, and a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And um, I mean, it's, it's kind of impossible to separate these things out because, Steve, what you said is totally true. Like, you do want to wring out quite a lot of this novel. There were just whole passages I scrawled next to and just said, you know, not needed kind of. It's overstated. And with Over a novel that yeah. is doing what this novel does, it does um, – overstatement can be kind of the the, the little – needle pricking the balloon that lets the air out. And so I think that your point about it being stranded between, we do tend to prefer maximalist fiction in America, or we like really minimalist fiction. I mean, think about, you know, the great novels, novels that we tend to give a lot of credit to are, you know, The Great Gatsby, quite short, or or a very long epic work. One thing I want to talk about before we close is the very end of the book, which I had completely forgotten. And I see why I forgot it. I find it awful and preposterous. But at the risk of giving a spoiler alert, um, well, here is a spoiler alert for our listeners. At the very end of the book, Jack Gladney goes and finds this man who's basically been dealing Dilar, this psychopharmaceutical drug that eradicates the fear of death or purports to, to his wife, Babette. And in order to get this drug, which is not yet on the market because it's being tested, Babette has slept with this this icky man, as we find him. And Jack Gladney goes to find him because, A, he wants the dialer, but also he decides that one of the ways he's going to deal with his own fear of death is by embracing violence. And so he shoots this man several times, and they both end up in the hospital where they have a really important... Jack has a really important dialogue with a nun about who laughs at him when he asks her if she believes in heaven. And that would be another passage I would point to as a really important passage in this book. But what do you make of this section of the book? I mean, was this a successful plot strategy? I think it's it's almost totally a failure. In the act of rereading some of these supposedly flawless classic books, you you discover that that they're they're 
very deeply flawed books compensated for by their genius. And a good example being I recently reread House of Mirth. The ending of House of Mirth is terrible. I mean, it's brutal. It almost makes you rethink the rest of the book, which is nearly perfect. And and this book goes off the rails. I mean, the nun that he has this specific dialogue with this nun is ridiculous, that the need to drive the plot towards death uh, in a slightly ridiculous, uh, preposterous way. Um, the one thing I liked about it is the acquisition of the gun mm-hmm. uh, from Babette's father, which I just thought was hysterically funny. And there's there's another great moment, very Murray-like moment, where he's being given the gun. Well, he's been given the gun maybe by the father. And the father starts talking about the car that he's giving them. And he goes through this litany of, of it, the car's fine except for, except for, except for. I mean, it's basically just a piece of crap car that can barely run. And you're sitting there thinking, now the father has the same sense of humor and this has got this whole... <laughs> and gets to the end of it and the daughter is cracking up. You find out the daughter is actually laughing hysterically at the <laughs> father. And you realize like he, he is self-consciously trying to be... The father, a character, the father is trying to be funny, but yeah, no, it's 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 a, the ending is essentially a disaster. Mm. Troy, what did you think? I would say that um, all the more offensively, it's sort of a travesty of the end of Lolita, right? And here's apparently I kind of lost all interest in the book around page two hundred ninety-seven, mm-hmm. so about thirteen pages from the end. My um, according to my marginalia, the the. Uh, this is the last paragraph that I paid enough attention to to hate properly. Um, and I offer this as uh, further evidence that, you know, the book, there's no sort of like uh, thematic coherence and that this passage read, ironically or not, is not any good. I fired the gun, the weapon, the pistol, the firearm, the automatic. The sound snowballed in the white room, adding on reflective waves, reflected waves. I watched blood squirt from the victim's midsection, a delicate arc. I marveled at the rich color, sensed the color-causing action of non-nucleated cells. The flow diminished to a trickle spread across the tile floor. I saw beyond words. I knew what red was, saw it in terms of dominant wavelength, luminance, purity. Mink's pain was beautiful, intense. Like, if you're willing to insert a paragraph like that in your book, I think that speaks towards larger... um, uh, bullshitting. Yeah. I mean, it's very puzzling, this ending. I just read Tom McCarthy's Remainder. I don't know if either of you read it. And I've, mm. I really hated the end of that book. And I realized it's lifted completely from this book. And I really hate the end of this book. So it didn't surprise me that I wouldn't like the end of Remainder. But actually, I thought the beginning of Remainder was brilliant in sort of some of the ways that I think the much parts of this book are brilliant. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to make of the end. I I sometimes wonder, is DeLillo pulling our leg a bit in having Jack Gladney go try to execute this execution and fail? Um, Is he trying to collapse? Because until now, there seemed to have been a distinction between Gladney's act of bullshitting, self-naming as the kind of doyen of Hitler studies and what it would be to become someone like Hitler. And this action seems to start to collapse those mm-hmm. that distinction in a way that yeah. I don't know what I'm supposed to make of and I don't find all that interesting, actually. And I don't believe. I feel I'm yeah. being bullshitted, but then I don't know am I being bullshitted? Did DeLille decide that he had to, as you say, take the plot deathward, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I, just two things I would say quickly is the first is he's talked into it by Murray. I mean, Murray, Murray unknowingly. If he's activated he, by Murray. He's activated, but Murray doesn't yeah. know the idea this guy exists, right? right, right, but, right. But, but Murray 
places this link in his head. Actually, I think sure. that that's a successful scene. He places this link in his head between. Uh, he said, "All men are either killers or or, or dying or dyers, right?" And 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 it's it's the height of Murray's preposterousness. And and Jack keeps trying to engage Murray in such a way to figure out whether he believes this. Like, do you believe it? And this is completely irrelevant for for Murray's. Like, Murray, he's to- they're talking past one another in some sense. You know, whether it's an and 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 Murray keeps academicizing the thought even as he seems to understand he's placing a virus into the person who's you know a vi- the virus of violence well, and this into is the person about who's... sort of postmodernism as academic theory here yeah. right yeah. and and I thought that there was an attempt at the end and then the second thing I'd say is that the, there is an attempt he then tries to rescue he mm-hmm. tries to save the life of the guy that he shot mm-hmm. and and there's it approaches a kind of classic bad novel epiphany which, by the way, Lolita has as well. I mean, I do think that the ending of Lolita is is ma- is masterful. I mean, it's an incredible ending. But there is a way in which you know Humbert has what could be ridiculed as a kind of fake epiphany at the end of it about how he's stolen this child's life from her, and and I felt like there was a possible epiphany at the end of this book where he realizes all of this horseshit that he's been thinking and this this, this scrim of horseshit that separates him from normal human feeling uh, uh, falls away when he realizes he's just. Sh- shot this guy and he's uh, you know in danger of having killed him based on a preposterous academic theory spun out extemporaneously in aisle five of the uh, Kmart or wherever it was um, and then he tries to rescue him and and yet there is a way in which Delillo refuses to break through that scrim right mm. that Delillo the writer refuses to go in that direction and make a humanist uh, a, a serious humanist gesture at the end of it is that a strength of the book or a weakness of the book? I, it's to be discussed by English grad students for the next millennium. I'd say the book's point of view, in as much as it has one, is more nihilistic than humanist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I would agree. I mean, one thing I end up thinking about the book is that it has no plot. It's got the leitmotif of plots, but there really is almost no plot in the book. And in fact, you know, one thing about the book that maybe I think is one of the sources of frustration for people and one of the reasons that the critiques can feel shallow is that you end up almost exactly where you began. The only plot development that really exists is Jack Gladney is forced to realize that his I, what he thinks of Babette is wrong. Mm-hmm. One of his refrains is that this isn't who Babette is. This isn't what Babette says when she says things that he doesn't find comforting. <laughs> she kind of falls apart as the comforting earth mother and that, that vision of her is demolished. But otherwise we end with a vision in the supermarket. He's looking at the tabloids and he's waiting in line and he says, this is where we wait together regardless of age. Our cart stocked with brightly colored goods, a slowly moving line, satisfying, giving us time to glance at the tabloids in the racks. Everything we need that is not food or love is here in the tabloid racks. The tales of the supernatural and the extraterrestrial, the miracle vitamins, the cures for cancer, the remedies for obesity, the cults of the famous and the dead. Which is a passage that we could start with, you know, too, I think. And that's sort of the point of the the book in some way. It's perhaps Um, a passage that we should start. Yeah, as a Conclusion that's uh, it's not satisfying to me. It's sort of if you want to if you want to engage with the myths that Americans tell themselves, that's a pretty good place to start. But um, again, the the novel fails because it just takes that as uh, its assumption and doesn't really engage with the idea. Mm. 
Do any, I get a parting last, thought? You get a parting thought. Here are my last words. First of all, I think that that's a reaching for the tone at the end of Joyce is the Dead, mm-hmm. uh, and he doesn't he doesn't hit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second thing I'd say is um, I believe the novel's a success because it is a satire, and I think it drives home the point of the satire, uh, maybe maybe somewhat tiresomely and, and, um, and excessively, but I think it drives the point home, which is that we assume that certain kinds of human connection are still dominant in our lives. And what's recessive and merely annoying is this white noise, right, of consumer culture. And I think the point of the satire is to make in an exaggerated way the point that, no, in fact, in fact, what we believe will always be dominant, which is just the basic human need for warmth, comfort, and community and love, uh, have become recessive and are on the defensive and are shrinking. And what's expanding is the flattered self. And our Flattered la- by advertising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And also just, just, the, just the actual architectural landscape, uh, uh, you know, the infrastructure, it all tells us that the only thing there is is this atomic unit and um and i actually think i actually think there's a grain of truth to that i mean i I, you know i think there is a grain of truth on that note uh, i want to thank you both for joining me today here and thank our listeners and we will be back soon with another edition of the audio book club for slate.com i'm megan o'rourke join us next month for a discussion of wolf hall by hillary mantel on the slate audio book club (music) 